Let's turn to John in the 8th chapter, John chapter 8 this morning. I will say that I've probably never been so nervous to preach a message before as I am today. And I'll explain why in just a moment. We have spent the last several weeks in John 7 with Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. On the final day of the feast, the great day of the water ceremony, while the temple guard was coming to arrest him, Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Well, in John 8, Jesus is still at the feast. And the discussion continues with Jesus using yet another powerful symbol, that of light, to describe his true identity. However, before we explore the truth that Jesus is the light of the world, we do need to deal with a textual issue that really has made me nervous. All right, let's read John 7, verse 53 through John 8 and verse 11. They went each to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he caught he came again to the temple. And the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to him to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, if you're looking at an ESV, you'll notice above chapter 8, little heading. In fact, if you're not looking at an ESV, you may want to pull out the pew Bible in front of you and look at it. Here's what that notice says, quote, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. You also notice the material that I just read is in double brackets. Those double brackets indicate the ESV translators believe the bracketed material was actually not in John's original autograph. That's what they mean by those brackets. In their estimation, that story that we just read was not in the material that John originally wrote. You also notice in the ESV a footnote which reads, Some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. 
In other words, in a few ancient texts, this story, this pericope of the woman caught in adultery shows up in different places in John and even in Luke, and the story is not ever told in quite the same way. So what are we to make of this? Well, first of all, I don't want anyone to be troubled by this textual issue, all right? Let me just sort of put you at ease at the beginning. I hope I can do this. There are very few passages in the New Testament where there is a question about authenticity, extremely few actually. For example, we worked the whole book of Matthew and there was only a single verse, 27 words in Matthew 23, where there was a question about the original reading of the text. 27 words in that whole gospel. Now in this case, we have 12 verses where there is a significant question about the inclusion of a whole story. And this is highly, highly unusual in the whole text of New Testament. We never ran into anything like this in Matthew. We saw nothing like this in all of Romans. Secondly, let's recall that a manuscript is a handwritten copy. Before the invention of the printing press, every Every copy of the Scripture was written by hand. Every last one of them. Now, we have nearly 6,000 surviving Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's an enormous number, far greater than any other source from the ancient world. In addition, we have more than 8,000 Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. In addition to that, we have numerous translations into other languages, ancient languages. Now, these thousands of manuscripts are merely the ones that have survived through the years. Doubtless, there were hundreds of thousands more that simply are lost to time. I mean, think about how many Bibles you had at one point that you don't even know where they are anymore. This, This happens over time. Manuscripts get lost. Now, in every case, someone sat down with a pen and a piece of parchment, and he he laboriously copied out the text, without exception. Now, the Holy Spirit did indeed inspire the original autographs, the original copies produced by the New Testament authors. The Holy Spirit was involved in that process when the apostles sat down and began to write. But we have no reason to believe that the Holy, Spi- the Holy Spirit inspired the copyist as they made thousands upon thousands and thousands more copies of the New Testament. And we can look at them and we can see slight variations between them. Somebody makes a spelling error over here, leaves a word out over here. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is inspiring these little changes. If I were to sit down and write out a copy of the New Testament by hand, I would have no guarantee of inspiration. I would try to do a really good job of it, but I would have no guarantee of Holy Spirit inspiration. Now, we do have good evidence that the scribes who copied these texts were extremely, meticulously careful. And we can compare them, all those different manuscripts that we have, the 6,000 Greeks plus the 8,000 Greek manuscripts, 8,000 Latin manuscripts, and we can compare them. And we can, we can, we can see at times where somebody has a slight uh, variation or spelling error or something like that. Um, But in a few cases, in a few cases, there is evidence of people actually altering a text or adding more to a text that wasn't there originally. And you can detect it because all you have to do is put those thousands of manuscripts together and look at them and say, well, there's a story over here that's not anywhere else. What are we supposed to do with this? Okay, so that was number two. Every manuscript is a handwritten copy. 
Third, let me point out that the story that we just read, John 7, 53 through John 8, verse 11, does not appear in virtually all the older Greek manuscripts which have been preserved from various parts of the Roman Empire. We have many old manuscripts, fragments that go all the way back to the 2nd century, actually, and we don't find this story. When none of the older manuscripts contain a particular reading, scholars generally assume that it crept into the text somewhere along the way. Now, there is one exception. This story does turn up in the Western Unsealed D text, which I'm sure none of you have ever read, all right? Western Unsealed D text. It's sometimes called Codex Bizet. This is a manuscript, a handwritten copy, that dates to about the 5th century. That is some 400 years after Jesus Christ. That's roughly the time gap between us and the Mayflower Pilgrims. All right? You got 400 years in there. Codex Bizet has the story that we just read. It is also known for having a wide variety of original readings that depart from other texts, from established readings. In other words, whoever wrote out this copy by hand seems to have taken some liberties with the text. We don't know who this person was, but he seems to have taken some liberties. Bruce Metzger is a famous New Testament Greek scholar, and he writes, quote, No known manuscript has so many and such remarkable variations from what is usually taken to be the normal New Testament text. Codex Bizet's special characteristics are the free edition and occasional omissions of words, sentences, and even incidents. And we just read an incident. Now, we have several older Greek texts of John, older than Codex Bizet, and they're written on papyri, and they do not contain this story. And this leads textual scholars to believe that the story of the woman caught in adultery was actually added by a copyist, whoever it was, that wrote or produced the Codex Bizet. Again, you have many, many older manuscripts that don't have the story. 400 years later, all of a sudden, we have the story. That was all number three. Number four, this story is not found in the oldest translations of John's Gospel. John was translated in the early church into Syriac, Coptic, which is down in Egypt, Old Latin, Old Gregorian, and Armenian. And whatever Greek manuscripts were used to produce those early translations obviously did not have this story in them because the story doesn't show up in the translations. All right? So, People were having these, they had these ancient Greek manuscripts, right? And they're copying them, they're translating them in these other languages. But in these ancient translations, this story does not appear. Fifthly, the church fathers who comment on the text of John's Gospel, who wrote commentaries line by line through John's Gospel, make no mention of the story. That's very curious that you would have many, many men commenting on the text of the gospel and no one mentions the story. 
their comments pass immediately from the text of John 7, verse 52, to John 8 and verse 12. Now remember, the, the verse divisions weren't there, right? It's like they're skipping verses deliberately. Those verse divisions weren't there. So again, they're, they're commenting line by line through the gospel, and they go straight from John 7:52 to John 8 and verse 12. All the ancient commentators that we know of. So if these fathers were to comment line by line through a gospel, doesn't it, doesn't it actually seem a little strange that all of them would just somehow skip the same story? It's actually far more likely that whatever copies they were using did not actually contain the story. In fact, understand this, no Eastern father, by the way, in the East, in Byzantium is where they really kept up the Greek scholarship, no Eastern father cites this passage before the 10th century. That's, that's quite remarkable. That's 900 years after Jesus. Apparently, in the early church, in the Greek-speaking church in Byzantium, they were using manuscripts that do not, that did not contain this story for 900 years. For 900 years. And then sixthly, later manuscripts that actually begin to include this story actually mark it off with textual indicators, just like the ESV translators did, that indicate the copyists aren't sure that this story really belongs. So to clarify, at some point along the way, this story is incorporated into manuscripts of the New Testament, but when scholars examined it, they said, well, we're not sure this really belongs, and they just let the reader know. Here's a story, we don't know if it's really authentic or not. And then seventh, as the ESV footnote indicated, the story tends to float around and lands in different places in John and even in Luke as if no one was quite sure where to put it. The fact is, it actually does not fit very well here in John. I won't go into the technicalities, but Greek scholars note that there's several things in the language of the text itself that don't appear to fit John's writing style. But even furthermore, as we'll see in a moment, the story tends to disrupt the natural progression of the text from 752 into verse 8, chapter 8 and verse 12. You can actually read seamlessly from John 752 to John 8 and verse 12 because both passages concern a controversy with the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. The story in between of the woman caught in adultery, it actually just seems almost sort of come out of nowhere at you. In fact, it requires that we add an extra day to the feast, which is a challenge because back in John 7 and verse 37, Jesus is at the last day of the feast, all right? which means that the rest of John 7 into John 8 all concerns that last day, and in John 8, we're in the night of that last day, all right, but when you read the text that we just worked through, it adds another day in there. So it, it, how, do you, how, do I, how do you add a day to the last day of the feast? It's really a challenge. Andreas Kostenberger is a leading evangelical, conservative, I want to emphasize conservative, Bible-believing, New Testament scholar, believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, all right, He's an expert on John's gospel, and listen to what he says. Quote, clearly the pericope, that's the story, of the adulterous woman interrupts the flow of the Johannine narrative. That's John's narrative. 
This is seen when the account is excised and 752 is followed immediately by 812. Here the simple answer is that we have a floating narrative in search of a gospel home, whether Luke or John, which was almost certainly not part of John's original gospel. This is also the opinion of D.A. Carson. I've mentioned him previously. He is probably the leading evangelical authority and commentator on John's gospel. This is a man who is a great scholar. He believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, Several months ago, we had Andy Maselli here speak for us. Uh, Andy Maselli worked for him, uh, did graduate work under him, and speaks very, very highly of Dr. Carson. And he writes, Modern English versions are right to rule it off, this story, from the rest of the text, or to relegate it to a footnote. So friends, given all that evidence, it seems to me that we ought to follow the consensus of good New Testament scholars, and I'm talking about faithful, believing scholars, and simply regard the story as a later addition to John's Gospel that was not found in the original. It's it's highly unlikely that John originally penned this story as part of his Gospel. Now, I suspect this may trouble some of you. So let me, let me add some clarification at this point, all right? I know this is challenging. First, the story very well could be true. D.A. Carson notes there was little reason for doubting that the event here, that the event here described occurred. Friends, Jesus was a very public figure, and thousands of people would have had memories of things that Jesus said. Miracles that he performed and interactions that Jesus had with people. And there were likely many stories of things Jesus said or did that were true, but they weren't written down in the original Gospels. They were written down in the early centuries. There were other stories about Jesus. and We learned of these from other places, but they weren't included in the original Gospels. The Gospels simply do not contain everything there is to know about Jesus. In fact, John himself is going to tell us that. There's so much more I could say that I'm not able to say. And we do know that stories similar to the story of the woman caught in adultery did circulate in the early church, even if they weren't included in the Gospels. So again, this story could indeed be true, and I think it's worth reflecting on. But I personally, in my own study, am convinced that I I probably should not preach it line by line and raise it to the level of the rest of John's Gospel, because I'm not personally convinced that every line of this was inspired by the Spirit. All right? And and you may feel differently, and that's totally fine. That's totally fine. All right? And secondly, this is is really, really crucial, okay? This is where I don't want anyone to begin to waver. All right? I am actually not calling in the question the reliability of Scripture. That is not what I'm doing. So if you're hearing that, that's not at all what I'm doing. New Testament scholars like Carson and Kostenberger are not calling into question the reliability of Scripture. In fact, they are doing exactly the opposite. And let me explain why. Textual criticism, I know that word is a little harsh, but textual criticism The examination of ancient manuscripts is designed to preserve the reliability of Scripture. That's the point of it. Let's preserve the reliability of Scripture. So friends, listen to this very carefully. To take a story out of the Bible 
that was originally in the Bible is to do damage to Scripture. Equally true, though, to add a story to the Bible, to add a story that wasn't originally in the Scripture is also to do damage to Scripture. It actually works both ways. We cannot subtract from Scripture, but we also cannot add to Scripture. Preserving the Scripture, again, does not merely involve making sure things don't get taken out. It involves scholars really making sure that nothing creeps in. All right? You can call into question the reliability of Scripture by detracting from it, but you can easily, just as easily call it into question by adding to it. It is true that some people get very upset about so-called modern scholars taking away parts of the Bible. That's actually not what they're doing. It is not true. They are trying to preserve the text as it originally appeared, and they're trying to keep things from being added in. We cannot add and we cannot subtract from the text of the New Testament. And in this case, and again, there's extremely few cases like this, it seems that someone along the way possibly added in a narrative that just simply wasn't there in the original. The vast majority of copyists did not, in the early manuscripts, include this. And actually, the fact that we can detect this, the fact that we can detect this is a remarkable testimony to the preservation of God's Word. Right? I mean, think about it. We, got, we have hundreds, you have thousands of manuscripts, Right? And so somebody comes and puts a story in, you can say, now wait a minute, we got all these manuscripts over here that don't have this. We got commentators that don't comment on this. We got translations out of the Greek that don't include this. We have so many, many copies that enable us to preserve the text of God's Word. All right, so again, my own position on this at this point in my life, knowing what I know at this point, is to is, is the question the authenticity of this in John's original account. And I, I don't believe that I could justly then work through it line by line and, and raise it to the same level with the rest of the Scripture. Okay. Okay. That's what I was so nervous about. You guys are still out there. All right. Very good. We'll see if you come back next week. <laughs> all right. And if you have any questions at all, and that wasn't clear, just... You know, ask me, give me a phone call, send me an email, whatever I can do. I, I don't want anyone troubled by this. God's Word has been remarkably, remarkably well-preserved. And, and, and people devote their lives to the preservation of God's Word. And this, again, may very well be a true story, but I don't know that it was actually in John's original. So, with all that in place, let's, let's keep our reading Let's keep moving forward the text and look at the text of John 8 and verse 12. John 8 and verse 12. Originally, I planned to preach all the way down through verse 20, but given that we had to work through that major issue, I decided to settle on one verse today. All right, verse 12, chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
having just declared himself to be the source of living water on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day of the water festival, Jesus now describes himself as the light of the world. The water of life and the light of the world. So friends, what exactly is light? Saw Dr. Stanley come in this morning. I thought we could have him come and explain this to us, perhaps. He is a physics professor. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Is it a wave-particle duality? Is it material? Is it immaterial? There's quite a bit of mystery when it comes to light. Light surrounds us. It warms our bodies. It illuminates the heavens above. But there is a mysterious quality to light. It's a massless particle. It's a wavelength. It can impart momentum without mass. The Encyclopedia Britannica says of light, no single answer to the question, what is light, satisfies the many contexts in which light is experienced, explored, and even exploited. The physicist is interested in the, in the physical properties of light. The artist and the aesthetic appreciation of the visible world. Light is a primary tool for perceiving the world and communicating within it. Light from the sun warms the earth, drives global weather patterns, and initiates the life-sustaining process of photosynthesis. Indeed, light provides a window on the universe from cosmological to atomic scales. Almost all the information about the rest of the universe reaches earth in the form of electromagnetic radiation or light. Did you know that without light, we'd know nothing about the vast universe that surrounds us? Light carries the images of billions of swirling galaxies into the lenses of our telescopes. Our planet is ideally situated to actually view the rest of the universe. We are located out in the spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy with very low star density. And that's very important. If we lived in the dusty center of our galaxy, we would never know there are other galaxies out there. You look out in the night sky, it would just be so dusty and white, you wouldn't be able to see the other galaxies. We also live in a flattened galaxy, like a frisbee. And this means that we can peer perpendicularly across that plane into the vast void of space. And we can see... Billions of galaxies. Is this some sort of divine conspiracy? Does the source of light intend that we use light to discover our place in the universe? Does the light of the world beckon us to look into the vast universe all around us and to discover His glory? To see His handiwork in the heavens above? Yes, absolutely. Here's what the psalmist says. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You look up in the heavens. There is knowledge of God to be found up there. I think some modern translations translate that, go take a class in astronomy. That's, that's very literal. Non-literal. But why not? Go behold the billions of lights out there sparkling in God's heavens. We also use light to peer through our microscopes into the absolutely minuscule world living inside the trillions of cells that comprise our bodies. Through light, we understand everything from photosynthesis and plant cells to the function of DNA and RNA. Without light, we'd understand none of this. 
Light is necessary for the growth of all living organisms. Without life, without light, rather, there would be no life on earth. No light, no life. And isn't it marvelous that Jesus in his incarnation is called the light of the world? Light is life. And light illumines all things. And would you notice as how light and life are inseparably linked in verse 12? Jesus calls himself light of life. Light, life and light are inseparable. You don't get one without the other. And they are inseparable in a physical sense. Without sunlight, there would be no organic life on our planet. And even down in those very dark caves, life without the heat light produces would be impossible. We'd have no life. But likewise, without the spiritual light of the sun, there can be no regenerative life in the believer. Without the light of the sun, there is no life. Now, would you picture the scene before us? Here we are in Jerusalem. Jesus has come for the Feast of Tabernacles. He is some six months away from His crucifixion. And last week, we witnessed the water ceremony. Let's recover that briefly. With crowds lining the streets, a priest steps down into the diminished pool of Siloam with a golden flag, and he draws out the water. He then travels up the street to the temple to the accompaniment of trumpets and flutes and singing. With a procession of people falling into the place behind him, the priest passes through the water gate on the south side of the temple into the inner court to the sound of three trumpet blasts and the shofar horns. Coming into the temple precincts, the temple choir begins singing the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And when the choir reaches Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook in his right hand a lulab. And with his left hand, he raises a piece of citrus fruit, symbolizing the abundant harvest that God has provided. And all the assembly suddenly cries out three times, Give thanks to Yahweh. Give thanks to Yahweh our God. The water then carried by the priest was emptied into a bowl, a silver bowl where it was mixed with wine. And then it was poured out as a libation on the great altar at the time of the sacrifice. When that priest poured out that libation, people again would invoke Yahweh, and they would request that Yahweh would respond by sending a new year of abundant rain. Would you send us your water, O Yahweh, to water our fields and to give us life? And that's the moment when Jesus cries out back in John 7 and verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what Jesus just did is he took that whole ceremony and hundreds of years of Jewish history and just reoriented it all to himself. It's all about me. I am the river of life. Yahweh is a source of Jewish life who sends the rain. And guess what? I am the water of life. Now the chief priests are indignant and they want to arrest Jesus. 
And the soldiers come for him, and they return empty-handed. And the priests want to know why. And the response is this, no one ever spoke like this man. Now night creeps over Jerusalem. It's the final day of the feast, but the festivities are far from over. Of course, the ancient world knew nothing of electrical currents as buzzing underground and exploding in light bulbs above. However, the temple itself was a place of light, of great light in the dark night of Jerusalem. In the temple, we're told from several sources that they had these four huge lanterns that illuminated the courtyard below. And during times of festival, exuberant exuberant pilgrims would come and they would celebrate under the light of those lanterns with singing and dancing out there in the courtyard. Those great lanterns kept the festival burning well into the night hours. It was a grand affair as they celebrate the beginning of a new year. The Mishnah tells us, Men of piety and good works dance through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. During these periods of celebration, the Levitical orchestra sent its joyful music across the night air. Again, a very grand affair. And that temple, Josephus tells us, is perched like a glittering crown up there on Jerusalem's highest peak. Josephus tells us that the temple was covered with these massive golden plates. They were hung along the walls of the temple, and they sent that light just shimmering in every direction. And during festivals, when the lanterns were lit, the temple just glowed like a lighthouse there on Jerusalem's highest point. The temple itself was a beacon in the dark world. It was the lightest place in all of Israel, actually. One of the lightest places in all the empire. And it pointed the way, the temple pointed the way to reunion with Yahweh. Come to the light. That's where we are reunited with Yahweh. Now, it's in this context that Jesus declares himself not only to be the living water, but the light of the world. Jesus is choosing his metaphors very deliberately. The temple was the center of all Jewish life. It was the most brilliantly lit space in all Jerusalem and all Israel. And Jesus once again just spontaneously reoriented the whole ceremony, the whole night, to himself. This is really quite remarkable. You really have to marvel at the audacity of his claims. In a single day, Jesus has managed to reorient both the water of life and the light of the world to himself. It's no wonder the Jews set about to kill him. Now, there is a little bit more going on in verse 12 than first meets the eye. And to see it, we've got to turn back to the Old Testament. So would you turn to Psalm 27? Psalm 27. There are many passages we could turn to. Let's turn to Psalm 27, then we're going to go to Exodus. As you're turning, let me just mention a couple other passages that identify Yahweh and God's Word as light. Listen to Isaiah 60 and verse 19. Here's what Isaiah says, The sun shall be no more your light by day 
Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Yahweh will be your light. Yahweh is our everlasting light. That's what the Old Testament taught us. Or think of Psalm 119 and verse 105. The word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's voice is light. And don't forget about how John's gospel began. Jesus is the Logos, the word of God in human flesh, and in him was life, and the life was the light of the world. Life and light in the word, they all go together. And look at this marvelous statement in Psalm 27 and verse 1. The Lord, all capital, right? That's Yahweh. Yahweh is my light. And because He's my light, Yahweh is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Again, when you see those words, that word, Lord, with all capital letters, that's God's proper name, Yahweh. Yahweh is my light. He is my salvation. All right, now hold on to all of that and go all the way back to Exodus chapter 6. And then we're going to turn to Exodus 3 also. And let's take a few moments. Let's actually re-examine some verses that we looked at a couple years ago. We took a break. Uh, was it a year and a half ago in the summer? I can't remember now. We did a little mini-series on the book of Exodus. We spent a, little, spent a little time on Exodus 6 and also Exodus chapter 3. But this passage is, these passages are so significant, I think it would be helpful just to recover them briefly. God has appeared to Moses as he is living in exile in the wilderness after escaping the wrath of Pharaoh. And God reminds Moses of the covenant. He will deliver the descendants of Jacob from the iron furnace of Egypt, and he is about to lead them into the promised land. Now notice in Exodus 6 and verse 2 what the text says. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Again, the four letters of the word Lord are capitalized. And you find this word more than 6,000 times in the Old Testament. In verse 3, the term appears again. Let's read it together with verse 4. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So God says, even though he appeared to Abraham, appeared to Isaac, appeared to Jacob, God did not make his name, Yahweh, all capital letters, known to them. They knew him as God Almighty. What God is doing here is He is making a distinction between a title and a name. A title and a name. He was known by a title, God Almighty, but that was not actually His proper name. God has many, many titles, but strictly speaking, God has one name. What is His name? Well, let's go back to Exodus 3. And here we find the more extended account of the revelation of God's proper name to Moses at the burning bush. Moses is out there pasturing a flock, and suddenly he sees a very strange sight. Here is a bush, a flame, yet unconsumed. 
And when he approaches, the voice tells him to remove his sandals because he stands on holy ground. And the voice says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Further, God says he has seen the affliction of the Hebrew children in Egypt, and he has come down to deliver them and to bring them up into the land of Canaan. And he reveals that Moses is God's chosen agent of deliverance. And Moses is like totally unprepared for that news. Like, who, me? And Moses is actually quite uncertain about the identity of the voice that speaks with him. And it's understandable. Five centuries have passed since God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. That is plenty of time for God to be forgotten. And you've got to remember that Moses never read the book of Genesis at this point. Now, 500 years. That, that's going back to Martin Luther's time. All right? You have a tradition that's as old as Martin Luther, but God hasn't been speaking to you since. Who is this God? Moses had very, he had nothing more than oral traditions that had been passed down for 500 years concerning how some distant God is going to bring his people up in the land of Canaan. Well, who is that God? Who is he? In fact, does that God even have a name? And that's how you have to read verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Well, what shall I say to them? Like, we don't even know your name. I mean, this is like the first thing you learn about somebody, their name. Right? What's your name? Does God have a name? And the answer is yes, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Which means it's still his name today. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. God wants to be remembered by his name, Yahweh. God says to Moses, my name is I am, or I am who I am. And again, if you're looking at a Hebrew Bible, I mean, at an English translation, you notice that I am is translated Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters. God says, I am, this is my name forever. It will never change. Now, in the Hebrew language, I am is most likely pronounced Yahweh, and I'm not going to go into all the technicalities of that at the moment, but this is the consensus of modern scholarship. God's proper name is Yahweh. And again, when you come across this name, Lord, in all capital letters, some 6,000 times in the Old Testament, that is the name Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. Now, the Hebrew term has some semantic variation. It can mean he is, or I am, or even he exists. And the curious thing about this name is it's both a verb and a noun. It's a verb and a noun. It's, it, it's, it's a proper person. It's a proper name, but it's also existence itself. It means to be. He is existence itself. It designates God the Creator as a source and the ground of all existence. It categorically distinguishes God from everything else in creation. Nothing in all creation can account for its own existence. Think of that. 
Nothing can account for its own existence, including you and me. But in Him, Paul says, we live and move and have our being. He is existence itself. So friends, who is that God who scattered all those galaxies across the vast expanse of space? Who is the God who sends those electrons whirling around their neutrons? Who is the God that inhabits and fills all of eternity? Who is the God that fills the entirety of every space with the entirety of His being? Don't think of God as really stretched out, really thin. God is fully potent in every particle of space. Who is this God? This God is I Am. He is existence itself. And now with all that in place, let's go back to John 8 and verse 12. John 8 and verse 12. As you turn, remember Psalm 27 and verse 1. The Lord Yahweh is my light, my salvation. Jesus, again, is standing here in John 8 under the brilliant light of Yahweh's temple, the brightest place in all of Israel. This is the same Jesus who just claimed to be the water of life. And He declares, I am the light of the world. And would you notice the two words, I am. I am. These are the Greek equivalent of Yahweh. Yahweh. In fact, this is one of several instances in John where we find Jesus using God's covenant name. And He's going to keep on using it through John 8, and they're going to try to kill Him in the end because of His use of it. They want to stone Him because He uses God's name. But friends, these words, I am, this is is Yahweh in Greek. And these references become increasingly clear through John's Gospel, until Judas finally comes to arrest him in the garden. And when Jesus, on that occasion, steps forward, he says, I am. And they all fall backwards to the crowd. They're not shocked that he's turning himself in. I think there is a momentary just radiance of his person right through his humanity. And it knocks them all flat. Jesus is indeed claiming to be not only the water of life, not only the light of the world, but Jesus is actually Yahweh Himself. This is the God who ignited the bush with flame. This is the God who revealed His name in the desert. This is the same God who is now speaking to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the God who sent water and light to sustain all life on earth. You Think about it. Without water and light, you've got no life. This is the same God who has now come in the words of John 1, the tabernacle among us. So friends, how are you to respond to a man who claims to be the water of life and then turns around and claims to be the light of the world and then has the audacity to claim God's name, I am? What are you going to do with this guy? Well, you could write him off as a lunatic, but surprisingly, almost no one, especially in Jesus' day, ever took that approach. That's shocking. Within weeks of his death on the cross, thousands upon thousands began confessing him as the resurrected Son of God. 
And they confessed him even to the point of death, the cruel martyr's death. They were cut down by Roman blades. They were thrown to the jaws of lions. But no one ever confessed him to be a lunatic. Millions upon millions of people have embraced him. And why have they done so? The answer is very simple. Look at verse 12 again. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, you embrace him. You embrace him because never were truer words spoken. He is the light of life. And when you embrace Jesus Christ, your, 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 your life, your whole life will just suddenly just flood with light. Oh, I can see. I can see. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Christ, the light of the world. We thank you, Lord, for the light that shines so brightly among us. And for anyone here today, Lord, who is still stumbling around in the darkness, Lord, we pray that they would just turn and gaze on Jesus and see Him as the brilliance, the radiation of Your own person. He is Yahweh. And I pray, Lord, that they might even leave today with light that their whole world would flood with light. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.